into Geek Elite Radio. Good luck. All right, live here at Blazing Desert Comic Con in San Diego, San Diego, San Luis, Arizona. Close enough. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's 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 a it's a it's a good little con. Uh, I'm here with Russ Kazmir. No, Kazmir Zek. Kazmir Zek. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> it's I was, okay. I had it and then I dropped it. But uh, yeah, I misspelled it once in the uh, first or second grade, and my dad made me write it a thousand times. That makes sense. So I misspelled my own last name, but. Never again, thanks to that <laughs> repetitive practice. So, <laughs> uh, San Luis. I mean, you're from Phoenix. From Phoenix, yes. And you do a lot out of there. You uh, you're here promoting your uh, comic book, your self published comic book, Amazing That's right. Arizona Comics. Yep. And how many? You're up to issue forty now, I believe. Right. I have forty issues self published. Uh, if you count the. The numbers on the covers, uh, I'm up to issue 33. I've done a lot of annuals and specials along the way. Oh, nice. So, yeah, in, in total, there's about 40 of them that have been out there. Okay. So, yep. And, what, I mean, what made you want to get into self-publishing comic books? I, you know, I, what was it? How many years ago? 2010, you said? 2010, I started. But in 2001, I was writing comic book scripts that a friend of mine would draw in California. That's where I lived at the time. And that collaboration was a lot of fun. So, when I moved back to Phoenix in 2010, I wanted to continue self-publishing. Um, but without my buddy Brent nearby, I had to draw the comics myself. So <laughs> I just picked up the pencil and, and started drawing. I've always drawn, um, but the patience and skill to draw a full-fledged story, even one as short as 6 to 14 pages as some of my comics are, it, it takes it takes time. It takes talent, and I wasn't sure that I had it at the time. But I, I was really passionate about these stories I had in my head, so I just started, and uh, I haven't stopped. So... Um, what got me interested in, in creating comics that are so local, I missed California when I moved back to Arizona. I felt like California was the center of the world. That's where all the action happens. It's where TMZ is. And if that's where TMZ is, you know, that's the center of the world. So um, I was watching the news one night, and uh, Sheriff Arpaio in Maricopa County was on CNN talking about immigration and SB 1070. And uh, I realized that Phoenix is the epicenter of that issue, and really a lot of other issues that, that influence the entire country. So it gave me a weird sense of pride to be in a major metropolitan city um, that navigated the course of that discussion and other discussions like it, for better or worse in that case, but nevertheless still uh, the center of the action. So I thought, you know what, what if superheroes exist in the midst of this issue? It's one thing to stop the Riddler from robbing a bank, but, you know, Arpaio was saying things like, you know, bad guys, and, and he was just talking about immigrants. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, how would a superhero like Batman um, react to issues that aren't as black and white as just wanting to take over the world, you know? <laughs> These are just people looking for another place to live. So uh, I thought those would be interesting issues to explore in a fun uh, self-published superhero comic. That You know, that's, that is awesome, because, yeah, you think about... You know, our, the the comic book superheroes that we read about more often than not, you know, take on the big 
world domination or even Spider-Man takes on, you know, like bank robbers and, and stuff like that. But what about the real social issues? And, and that's, I mean, that's what you got. You got, you have the, the idea of, you know, uh, what I consider a bad person and what someone else considers a bad person on a lower scale or right. on a, you know, different scale or social scale. Uh, it could be com- something completely different. And uh, that, that's that's a very interesting topic to take, take well, on. Well, thanks, man. I thought that if um, Commissioner Gordon really existed, he would be a lot like Sheriff Arpaio, perhaps not with the same views, but as far as the public persona of law enforcement, somebody in a town that, that represents the law. That's what Arpaio was for many years in Phoenix and in Maricopa County as a whole. And that's what Commissioner Gordon is in Gotham. Right. So... What if Sheriff Arpaio had his own Batman or Justice League or team of super-powered folks that, that were at his beck and call? And then what if in the midst of a controversial issue like that, they didn't agree with him? So that was kind of the, the, the springboard for the, the 40 issues that followed. <laughs> uh, speaking from more of a, a structure side, I guess, or infrastructure side of, the, of, the, of making yourself publishing your own comic book, um, obviously, you're, you're doing the writing and, and the drawing is probably more of a passion, whereas all the logistics of it, put, print, getting it printed, having it get put out, you know, having to go to cons and, sure. and stuff like this. How, how do you feel about all that like as a, as a whole? Well, I really enjoy going to cons. Okay. I feel like making the comic would be akin to um, a musician in the studio. You know, I'm, I'm putting my, my work... Uh, I'm manifesting it in a tangible way so people can enjoy it. So in my case, I'm writing and drawing a comic. In the case of a musician, it's recording a track. Coming to con is like the concert. You know, this is where I get to show off those skills and demonstrate them live. So sketching for people is like performing the songs I'm proverbially drawing. Am I mixing metaphors now? But you you kind of know what what I mean. This is where I get to see the people, so to speak, and and sell the work and make sure all that time in the studio is worthwhile. Publishing the comic itself, uh, you know, after a lot of trial and error over the last seven years, I kind of have that down to a science, too, where, you know, I printed my latest issue uh, yesterday morning before we hit the road for Yuma. It took about an hour to get a small print run in my hands, um... So I'm pretty proud of that process now. And do you, do you feel like the doing your sketches at the cons like that, is it helping you hone your, your skill of drawing? Or Absolutely, yeah. I try to do them quickly. Um, they're very personable as far as taking requests from somebody passing by the table. It's like performing a cover song in a way. Right. You know, people aren't asking me to, to draw my character so much as they are to draw Captain America. That's like the free bird of Comic-Con. <laughs> you know, free bird! Can you draw Deadpool? Free, free bird. Oh, yeah. yeah it's the same, yeah, it's the same thing. And then if in so doing they're impressed with my style, I could sell them a comic. I mean, that's what bands do. They'll play a song you're familiar with. You kind of get in that groove. Right. You start to dig their style. Then maybe you go buy the album, you know? So I, I look at it a lot that way. And uh, have you found there's one particular, I don't know, maybe character that you draw better than others? Or Well, I could draw Batman pretty quickly. Yeah. I've been drawing Batman since I was like five. Um, <laughs> Deadpool's become uh, everybody's favorite lately, so I could draw him pretty quickly. I still kind of struggle with Harley Quinn. I mean, I must draw, you know, at a Phoenix Comic Con, a four-day show, I've, I probably draw a dozen Harley Quinns and... You know, she has so many different costumes at this point, too. I have to ask, do you want the classic animated series costume? Do you want the more contemporary Suicide Squad costume? Somebody just asked me for the Arkham Knight video game costume. I had to look that up. (laughs) Um, 
So I still struggle with her only because people have such a definitive image of who she is and what she represents in their own minds that I want to make sure that's the drawing they get. Um, but yeah, a character like Daredevil or Captain America, they come pretty naturally to me because I've loved them my whole life and I've been drawing them for myself. So. Is there a particular comic book artist that uh, you you try and, uh, not emulate, but you draw inspiration from or sure. that got you into it? Or? Uh, Eric Larson was uh, drawing Amazing Spider-Man when I started reading comics in the early 90s and his style really captured my imagination. Uh, I've followed Savage Dragon ever since when he uh, moved over to Image. And he draws pretty quickly and uniquely, too, when you look at the way he holds a pencil. Mm. Um, I don't hold my pencil that way, but uh, (laughs) I try to think about his quick, sketchy style, at least at the pencils phase of his work, um, because it really solidifies things with the inks. Um, So I'm presenting kind of a very quick pencil sketch. It's a jam of, of what that character is, you know. And then from there, uh, if folks want something a little tighter, I think about Bruce Timm's style a lot, that cartoony, fluid style that he has. Um, Mike Allred is, is an amazing artist, too, that I, that I think about a lot. Of course, you could trace all three of those guys right back to Jack Kirby. Right. So there's yeah. a lot of Kirby as far as the exaggerated ana- anatomy, the, um, the intense uh, uh, perspective and stuff like that, so... No, I'm just using big artsy words. But yeah. <laughs> All of those names and styles are, are coming out when I'm sketching for people, whether I'm co- uh, you know consciously thinking about it or not. So, and I mean, what's what's the? I, I mean, I guess you said you've been drawing Batman since you were five, but uh, are there book like are there books from the big two that you enjoy every month that you go make sure you read? Honestly, not really. Um, I feel like continuity and then the reboot and then continuity and the reboot um i've been ground down by that over the last it is pretty killer uh gosh few years since the new 52 and now what's marvel doing um fresh start fresh start after they just did legacy (laughs) right before that was all new yeah i you know dc's putting out a new label called um Black label? Black label? Yeah, they came, that's, they, I think they announced that yesterday? or I think so, ago? yeah. They announced um, Superman Year One with yeah. Miller and Romita. I might check that out because, one, they're, they're, they're referencing Year One, right. which is one of the greatest stories, and so if they're going to try to give Superman that treatment, that's awesome. Two, from what I've read, they want to give artists a chance to draw or write their favorite stories that are not attached to canon, so... Again, if I can get something that's kind of continuity-free but still truly representative of, of who these characters are, right. um, I think there's, there's, there's got to be a way to do that that's contemporary and fresh but without slapping a number one on the cover. And that, I mean, that's, I, mean I, I get it from a marketing standpoint of throwing out a new number one. It's gonna, you're going to grab someone and be sure. like that. But then, you know, 12 issues down the line, you're like, oh, we're going back to our old numbering. It's right. Like, oh. Well, and it, here's my solution to that. Throw away the the numbering altogether okay. and just offer miniseries after miniseries after miniseries so imagine if um, which I assume most people are buying the, the set graphic novel at the end you know the, right as opposed to uh, individual issues anymore right, right. so right. they're getting the individual story that they want that's kind of self-contained that is yet still a part of this obligatory lineage or legacy of numbering I mean just imagine if Batman's Hush story started at number one and ended at 12. And then I think uh, Azarello followed that with Broken City or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Uh, so imagine if that started with number one and went to number six. 
It's still coming out monthly. It's still Batman, but it's Batman colon something, the mm-hmm. title of that respective arc, with the artists that are attached. And then, um, yeah, that was your number one. So it would still be the, the gripe that we fans, old fans, have now. is God, a new number one every six to 12 months. But it would make sense in that this is a specific writer and artist's vision. Um, and the monthly is just coming coming through the the fact that you have these characters in their respective worlds. Well, know? like one of the things I used to love when I first started getting into comic comic books was um, I remember DC used to do a thing where they they had their number, but then they also had the triangle on the side that sure. said, you know, if you're reading action, this is number one. If you're reading Man of Tomorrow, this is the number right. two part of the story. You know, yeah, I know. remember that. Yeah, so sure. I, I don't know why they, they they stopped doing that, but I guess it's more to keep the story separate. Nowadays, too, you got to assume that as much as there are consistent monthly readers like you or I might be, there's also the Fairweather fan that comes in based on whatever movies just come out. That's true. So if folks are walking into a comic book shop to pick up uh, an issue of Black Panther right now, would they be intimidated by a number 200-whatever versus a number 3, where they can go back and find the previous two if they really want, or at least feel like they're getting in early enough with that number 3? So I know that store owners have to consider that too not just the publishers themselves but the folks that that really have the burden of getting these issues into fans hands every month as much as the artist the writer and the story might be easy to sell that number is a weight on the on the issue now so you know it's interesting too because we're celebrating action comics 1000 very very soon and that's amazing but at the same time they're promising a new start with bendis coming onto the title so as much as they're they're marketing this, oh my gosh, we made it to 1,000 at the same time. You could jump on with issue 1,000 because Bendis is starting there. So it's, it's this weird tug of war of what's trendy, what's, what's, what's fun to read, um, what's relevant now versus what, what has the importance of history behind it. It's comics. No, no yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All the best stories, um, you know, Gotham by Gaslight just came out in its animated form. Right. And I was talking to Brian Augustin, the writer of the original story, and he had pitched that as a Batman annual. And the editors really? at the time said, you know what, this is too good. Let's give it its own prestige format. Batman Long Halloween, same situation where it was pitched initially as a Batman Legends of the Dark Knight story. No, let's, let's pull this out and make it its own miniseries. So it seems like the best stuff gets its own miniseries format anyway. anyway, so why not just do that monthly? And, and again, you know, you, you have this, the opportunity to get the best of both worlds there yeah uh other than the big two are there are there books that you look forward to um i got a soft spot for archie especially since uh, riverdale's a great tv show and the monkeys my favorite band of all time recently guest starred in in an issue of the archies <laughs> uh the archies number four um so i like archie uh i like savage dragon uh dynamite was making some great lone ranger comics uh, not too long ago so I like all of their attention to the pulp heroes like the Shadow and Green they, Hornet. I was going to say, they were doing Green Hornet. I was reading that one for a yeah. while. So uh, they're bringing back those characters in a great way. That's what I'm really into with superhero stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, what? Um, I mean, not to just jump off comic books, but I mean, are there other things that you geek out about? Is there? Um, I like all of the TV shows that uh, adapt. Some of the, the CW shows are unbelievable I to think me. For... From what it sounds like they do with the the, the low budget that they have and the, the shooting schedule that they have to do, I think they do a great job. They oh, yeah. Amazing Cr- job. Crisis on Earth X was the best 
superhero thing I've ever seen on film. Oh my goodness, that was so amazing. Those four episodes, we did like I think we did three podcasts just on that alone. <laughs> that, that was so great. They they knew how to spread it out too. Like they really, you know, like when you go to a buffet, you're tempted to put all of your favorite stuff on that first plate. <laughs> But if you strategize and you spread out the great stuff, you know what I mean? Like, I'll come back for that orange chicken. I'm not going to... I'll get the sesame chicken now. I'm going to come back. That's what they did with the characters. Like, when Red Tornado appeared as the guard for that uh, that for stronghold right, or whatever, right, yeah, yeah. right? Something like that. I just... I was, oh, I, was, I can't believe it. And that was, like, episode three of the four. Right. It just kept... The stuff kept coming, you know? And we'd been watching the shows already, so the Firestorm stuff was really emotional that was yeah so not only was he was not expecting that i wasn't i was like you're doing this crossover basically an annual and you're gonna you're gonna you know take out one of the main characters in one of the shows and that was Uh, uh, that's what i liked i liked that compared to their previous year's crossovers they were actually able to make this one important to all of the series Mm -hmm. with the weddings and the death and stuff like that like it still affects those series like you can't have the tone of the current Episodes without that crossover from a couple months ago now. So that's great. But I mentioned the monkeys too, and I geek out on them <laughs> quite a bit. I'm probably the biggest monkeys fan you'll ever meet. So. Which, uh, there's the connection to Arrow, right? Uh, Laurel, the monkeys? Am I, am I thinking the wrong band? It, yeah, it wasn't, uh, wasn't, isn't the actress who plays Laurel um, the daughter of. So Kate, Kate Cassidy is the daughter of. David Cassidy? That's not the moment. That's a Partridge family. My bad. I'm sorry. No, I I forgive you. Same era. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to get all bent out of shape about something like that. How dare you, sir? Music isn't one of the things I geek out about, so I'm sorry. A little little bit of behind the scenes for Mitch. There's a Don Kirshner connection there, I'm sure. So anybody that (laughs) is really into 60s pop music will hear me say that name and think, oh, okay, it's not too far-fetched to get from Arrow to the Partridge family to the monkeys in that respect. (laughs) Uh, you, you talked about the movies a, se- a second ago. I mean, is, are you into the, the movies, too? Like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, oh, yeah. the DCU? That's going to church for me. Yeah. To go watch those movies in the theater with other people. I like going on opening weekend um, because I like being with other people and and hearing the reaction from a mainstream audience. It's a, um, I mean, it's an event at yeah. that point. You know, it's all the people are there. You're, you're, you're seeing it as a collective group and oh, yeah. you know you get those emotions like i i, I would say the same thing is that i am a i mean i'm a huge fan i'm gonna i'm gonna buy those dvds i'm gonna watch them at home anyways but you know you get to have that reaction with everybody else where something that i know should happen or is gonna happen and then everybody's like oh right what? like yeah. okay uh i think the biggest one was um winter soldier at the moment when they reveal that the Winter Soldier is Bucky, like I know that from re- being a comic book fan, of course, yeah. But everybody else in the theater isn't one, and all of a sudden they're like, "What? The guy who died in the first one?" And I was just like, "That is awesome that all these people get to experience that." A similar moment came um, when Michael Keaton opens the door in, in Spider-Man: Homecoming, and you realize, "Oh, that's her dad." Right. Um, the gasp from the audience—it <laughs> was—it was so great to hear that kind of like emotional investment with the vulture but you know in, in that story in general it but was i mean great. even for us as, as comic fans that was a that was that would have been a gas that was, was a, yeah, at least it was, was a, a gas for me because i didn't i mean i wasn't expecting that liz who i mean essentially had to have been liz allen was the sure. daughter of the vulture in this version and it's like that doesn't happen in the comic books but it was a good twist and it was pretty organic all yeah. things considered yeah i liked it a lot yeah so uh what what character 
that they haven't made yet would you be looking forward to on the big screen? Well, I'm looking forward to the Cloak and Dagger series. That was a big, uh, that was a favorite title of mine. Really? Yeah, Cloak and Dagger. Um, I don't know if the TV show is going to be to my liking as a traditional fan, and mm-hmm. you know, I like to see the adaptation come. Pretty I mean, straight. That book from is pretty dark. In um, general, at, at times, yeah. I, I jumped on. Um, when they starred alongside Doctor Strange in Strange Tales, Volume 2. So, Brett Blevins was the artist at the time. Um, then I followed them into their own series. Went back and collected everything else with Rick Leonardi and, uh, and Bill Mantlo, creator of Rocket Raccoon as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping that, that that TV show's great. But as far as characters they haven't adapted yet, I mean, geez, it's like... Everybody's been on the large or small screen. Anarchy is a favorite Batman villain of mine. He's been on Arrow. Right. Um, I don't know if we... Have we seen the ventriloquist from Batman on Gotham? I don't think we have yet. Mm. So that would be a, a fun character with his little puppet Scarface. <laughs> uh, that would be fun to see, but man, as far as any other superheroes, I mean, Savage Dragon had his own cartoon in the 90s. It wasn't great. But okay. it's pretty true to the comics in that way. If so. they were to do a live-action Savage Dragon, who would you like to see play? Uh, Larson used to talk about Bruce Willis back in the day. You know, Willis might still have it in him, actually. But um, a young Savage Dragon with that kind of attitude and the street-level fisticuffs that you see in that book. I'm trying to think of who a good, like, brawler would be. <laughs> you want to say The Rock, because The Rock's good at everything he's in. <laughs> he's but, um, very charismatic. He, he's in everything, and he's good at anything, but um, I don't know. I don't know big buff actors. It almost seems like you'd have to go with some professional wrestler or something. Yeah, right. Like right. John Cena. Somebody, yeah, but on the younger side, well, I don't know how I don't know how young those guys are, because I guess Dragon was in his early 30s um, when the series started. Now that he, you know, Larson writes and draws it in real time, so now Dragon's in like his 50s, and mm. his son is really the star of the book now, so... Um, yeah, I don't know. And then you'd have to consider that, too. Do you just jump in it where it is now with Malcolm Dragon, who's basically half black, half dragon, um, <laughs> and he's got his own little family. With a, a book like that, the sky's the limit as to where to start, who yeah. can star, and so on. I mean, I could see Will Smith's son starring as Malcolm Dragon, you know, so who knows? There you go. Uh Video games, anime, you know? Not really. No? I have my original Nintendo still plugged in at home. That's Play awesome. Super Mario Brothers 3 from time <laughs> to time. Um, never got into anime. I recently asked somebody um, if I were to read manga, where should I start? And they suggested One Punch Man. Would you say that would be a I good? don't. Yeah, I don't I'm know. not an anime manga person <laughs> at all, but... Uh, That's what's interesting about uh, being a geek nowadays, especially a superhero comics geek, is there's the assumption that if you're in it for one thing, you're in it for everything. It's true. You know, so... I can't even say I've seen all of Lord of the Rings, man. That's how like, <laughs> particular I am with my tastes. Um, I am a superhero comics geek, that's for sure, but that doesn't mean I read everything on the stands. I don't, oh, yeah. no, I've, I haven't read an issue of Squirrel Girl, for example, and that seems to be a big title people like nowadays. Um, haven't watched all of the Netflix series yet. No, uh, which yeah, ones have you missed? I haven't seen not all of the second season of Daredevil. I haven't okay. watched The Punisher. I am excited about the second season of Jessica Jones, which just, just dropped. dropped. Yeah, on Thursday on International Women's Day. Oh, is that right? Yeah. 
That's, you know, they always drop things on Fridays, and they dropped it on Thursday. I was like, why? Why did they do that? And then I was like, ah, oh, it's International Women's Day. That's oh, my gosh. Because they did, you know, I, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, all the episodes in that season were directed by women, direct, women directors. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, okay. obviously, it's, that's not the reason why, but you sure. know, it's, it's, it's all adds up. Sure. So it has to come out on International Women's Day, because if it came out on any other day... <laughs> It wouldn't have been as impressive. <laughs> to me, it would have been more impressive if you just drop it like that's commonplace. Exactly. You know what I mean? But yeah. how much further can we progress with these things if you have to compartmentalize it on the days exactly. that they're celebrated? I mean, it's no coincidence that Black Panther came out in February, Black History Month. Right. How much more impactful would it have been if it had come out in March and it was still an amazing movie about culture <laughs> like that? So. I'm Did you on enjoy Black box. Panther? I loved it. Yeah, I loved Dude, it a lot. I, I, I'd say it's in the top three of the MCU for me right now. Now, let me run something by you, though, because I've only had, like, really close friends to discuss this with, so it'll be interesting to get an acquaintance's view on this um, and a podcaster, professional podcaster's view on this. Did you watch um, The Inhumans show on ABC? Uh, I've I watched up to the last three episodes. Okay, I so you're finished it. familiar with the plot. Let, mm-hmm. me, let me summarize for you. You have a royal family in a hidden city. Somebody with ties to the bloodline challenges for the throne, casts the hero out with his strong female counterparts, by the way, <laughs> casts them out of the city. They have to now experience this trek through the real world to get back to that city and reclaim the throne. Sounds familiar. Um, the villain is kind of righteous, kind of has a point. You kind of sympathize. And there's a fight, and the hero uh, reclaims the throne at the end at the expense of his proverbial brother. With whom he still sympathizes, even though this guy tried to kill him multiple times. It's Black Panther and ABC's Inhumans. You're right. It's the exact same story, beat for beat. But for some reason, Black Panther resonates a little more with us. I, I just and have to say that, I mean, I wanted Inhumans to do well. I just think that the way they went about it and the way they decided to shoot it, yeah. it just did not work out. Yeah, Adelan looked like it was one room. Yeah. This majestic city on the hill that is the moon Um, it looked like it all took place in one room that's where all the important meetings were that's where the whispered conspiracies took place it's like this has to be a bigger palace and and, and they had such a great cast like there's no reason why that show should not have done well i just don't think i just don't think they 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 made the show well enough yeah absolutely the tv budget yeah crippled them and i wonder too if it wasn't a feature-length film because of the similarities between i didn't even think about that you know if you had had inhumans come out a few months before black panther and then black panther dropped would have been like well that's just black inhumans (laughs) i mean it's the same it's the same story story. i mean comic books though i love them they do kind of trend tread on the same story over and over and we're starting to see that now a lot as far as like the hidden city you have uh, Themyscira and Wonder Woman you have Adelan you have Wakanda it's probably Um, Atlantis here pretty soon Atlantis we'll we'll have it in Aquaman and then we'll probably have it again in Namor whenever they decide to do that absolutely sure Um, the strong all-female army you see that on Themyscira Themyscira again you see that um, in Wakanda so I mean Black Panther for as amazing as it was I think suffers from the fact that so much great material has come before it. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, it still stands on its own um, and is a remarkable adaptation and a a nice step forward in superhero movies. But, you know, as somebody that kind of sees these things a couple times a piece, I was like, "Mm." Uh, it's getting a lot of praise for being unique, but a lot of the tropes are really similar to stuff we've already seen. Not that that that's a bad thing, it's just, you know, again, an advanced city 
on Earth. I'm like, that's the mascara, too. And we were yeah. just praising Wonder Woman less than a year ago for, for that. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's kind of the way I... Uh, in, interesting... Hey, it's it, critical thinking of, you know, what, what, what we're seeing. And, yeah, sure. you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it is true. And, like I said, it, I mean, we got to look at, you know, how many... Back in the day when all these things were created, how many of the you know were the same people working <laughs> in all the, the circles? You know, so. <laughs> that's absolutely right. Uh, For as innovative as Jack Kirby was, a lot of his um, big despots, the big bad guys, uh, their goal in the end was just slavery. Let's just enslave the human race, and uh, that's one of the things I actually love about Kirby's work. Is one of the consistent themes is the ultimate evil is making people do work they don't want to do, like dark side wanting to enslave everybody on earth Mm -hmm. and um have them remake earth in the apocalyptic image you know and then there was another villain in captain america the name escapes me but his whole thing was um during kirby's second run on cap um you know in the marvel age uh, the the villain's goal was to just enslave everyone on earth and when you saw what he was doing with the people he was abducting they were in chains with pickaxes at rocks and just chipping at rock and who knows what the who knows what the goal is here other than that I just love that that was Kirby's vision was so you know, basically uh, being being someone else's slave yeah under going the to work a slave driver yeah yeah the the doing a job you don't want to do the daily grind was what he thought uh, the worst villain's <laughs> goals were <laughs> so if you're know. working at a job right now that you do not like. You were fulfilling Darkseid's mission for Earth. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know if that was uh, if that's just uh, a commentary on, on uh, you know, uh, the working class or if that was a commentary on working for Stan Lee. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's to, and that circles back to my own comics. That's why I make comics that are kind of rooted in real-life issues. Because to me, superhero stories are best when they're connected to things we can really relate to like Action Comics number one the very beginning the holy grail of superhero stories he's not fighting Lex Luthor in that or Brainiac or anything he's fighting a corrupt landlord a wife beater um, the government you know corrupt politicians these are like every man's arch nemeses you know and in the first issue of Action Superman's taking them on with you know the strength of Hercules and he's jumping over buildings and so grabbing a wife beater by the hand, how do you feel about hitting a man, you know, he says, and stuff like that. So it's pretty crazy um, to think that, like, it, it, The Dark Knight Returns is another great example. I mean, just the role the Cold War played in that, mm-hmm. in the subtext of that story, uh, as much as you have, like, the world's finest at odds, and that, and, and the Joker maniacally plotting, and, and Two-Face and everything like that, like, still... The, uh, one of the major villains on, on Batman's hit list in that in that story was the status quo, the American status quo, and how complacent people had become um, in the Reagan era. And so I just love that kind of political bite. That, and, and that's why I think the Marvel movies have become so successful, and they really resonate with the mainstream audience, because in the first scene of Iron Man, it all starts with him in the Middle East selling weapons, mm-hmm. you know, and we all have an opinion on the real-world context of that. So to see a hero transformed by that issue uh, is important to us. It's, it's cool, and that's the, the stories that, that we love are the ones we could put ourselves in. Right. So it's both escapist and therapeutic. <laughs> so that's why, that's why I love superhero stories the most. No, no, exactly. And I, I mean... I love the older stories and where they came from, but I love that, you know, newer writers have adapted it to, you know, surroundings of what we see now. Absolutely, yeah. Um, 
Well, I mean, it sounds like they're about to start up their masquerade here, but what uh, what cons next for you? Um, the Verde Valley Comic Expo in Cottonwood is coming up in uh, April. Or now, actually, that's later this month, um, on, in March, March 23rd or 24th. And then there's a Tempe Library Con in April. Okay. Um, so, yeah, con season's begun for me, man. When you, really look, when you look smaller scale, there's always something new. Every weekend of the year, it seems like there's a con going on. Somewhere. Um, and probably and, within your vicinity. Well, yeah, and here in Arizona, we were just talking. There's three down here in the Yuma area yes. between the Library Con in May, the Yuma, Yuma con, in con in November, and then this. Um, people would think of Yuma as just like a dusty little desert town. I think most people think of Yuma as the stop on the way to San Diego. Right. <laughs> so, do you need to hit the bathroom? We'll stop here. If we, not, we're going to truck on. We all know there's a 310 to here. <laughs> Essentially, yes. But, uh, yeah, there's three cons here. That, so that just goes to show that in any major town or city in the country, there's a, a group of geeks that have, that have come around finally <laughs> and are willing to dress up and go out and celebrate this stuff. Uh, you want to give out some of your social media? Oh, yeah. At uh, AmazingAZComics is my uh, Instagram. AmazingArizonaComics.com is my website. And you can see some of my video production work at Kazbro Productions. That's K-A-Z-B-R-O Productions on YouTube. Awesome. So this has been Geekly Radio at Been Blazing Desert Comic Con in San Luis, Arizona. We just have to say, always remember to geek, geek out. out. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program.